being a pastor that I absolutely love. It's officiating weddings. It's some of the most fun I've ever had. Um, And because if you know me well enough, you know how common it is that I stumble over words or I rearrange things. So the first wedding I ever officiated was for my brother and sister-in-law, so Kelsey's brother and uh, her sister. And so as she was coming down the aisle, I was standing with her brother and she gets to the front. And what are you supposed to say as the officiant? You say, who gives this woman to be with this man? What did I say? Who gives this man to be with this woman? And it ended up being the best part of the wedding. Everyone laughed, and it, it kind of let the air out of the room. We had an awesome time. So that, that's just part of who I am. Well, in three weeks, I'm, my family and I were driving back down to California uh, because I'm going to officiate my sister's wedding. So I can only imagine what's going to come out at that moment. Uh, but I'm really excited about the opportunity because uh, I, I'm, I'm going to embarrass her and she wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm thinking about how to involve my brother in it at my brother's wedding because he played in the NFL. Uh, when he said, I do, and they kissed, we all threw like uh, yellow flags as if he did something wrong and had to do it again. I mean, so, so we have some fun with it each time. So my brother and I are working on what to do at this wedding. And my parents are going to be sitting in the front row because all their kids are going to be up on stage. And they're going to be a mess. My dad's going to be just blubbering, trying to hold it together. It's going to be awesome and exciting because it's going to be in a, a wonderful family affair. We're all going to be together and united in it. And I think weddings are fun. They're joyous. They're memorable. Uh, they're a great reminder for me of the promised life to come. Because my favorite part of every wedding isn't the reception. It's actually the ceremony. Because a ceremony that accurately and uh, establishes a new family in the love of Christ warms and fills my heart better than any party ever could. That's because what Christ offers us is better than anything that has come before or will come after. So he offers us a, a new life, a new hope, a new joy, a new peace, new honor, new value, a new worth. And if you're gonna see the glory of Christ this morning in this message, in John chapter two, you're gonna come to a response. You're going to have to respond to the new glory that he's going to give you, a better glory that he's going to show us this morning. You're going to choose to believe or choose to hide, choose to run away, choose to not believe. He will offer us a better glory this morning. Last week, Pastor Daniel preached a powerful sermon. He showed us how the witnesses of Jesus saw his glory and became heralds of that glory to the world around them. They proclaim that our exile from God is at an end because God has returned in the flesh to take away the sins of the world. And in the place of that exile, Jesus brings those who believe in him something better. Jesus reveals the goodness of his glory, and you know where he does it? At a wedding. And so this morning, I'm going to lay a feast for us. And instead of eating for consumption, we're going to eat for quality. I'm going to describe the elements of this meal in rich detail as if you're a food critic. And once we're done exploring the luxurious ingredients, I want you to feast to your head and your heart's content. It's a simple sign. It's a simple miracle of turning water into wine. And yet it is deep. And it is broad. Will you pray with me this morning before we jump in? Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to be the teacher. For you are a good and glorious God. And your goodness knows no bounds. May you remove the scales from our eyes and the hardness of our heart that we may see and receive your son's good glory. So for those who are sitting in this room that have yet to believe and those who do believe, 
May we be able to rejoice and exalt your name for the ability to see and recognize how good your glory is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with me or if you have your phone, open up with me to John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. And what we're going to see right off the bat is Jesus' glory is revealed in everyday life. When you read with me, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. From the penning, the beginning of the penning of this book, John wrote, In the beginning, and since that time until this, it's been seven days. It's an interesting point to note that he, but we can only speculate as to why John's non-chronological memoir includes seven days from in the beginning, but he does it. But what it does say is that Jesus traveled from town to town, and we know where they are, we know the distances he moved. And so in this gospel, Jesus' divinity is on amazing display, but also his humanity. He walked like everyone else. He conversed like everyone else. He participated in culture just like everyone else. As the glory and divinity of Christ is proclaimed throughout this gospel, don't miss that his perfect humanity is on display as well. And so Jesus traveled from town to town talking with people just as you and I do. But Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is truly God and truly man. Everything that God is, Christ is. And in every way that man was intended to be, Christ is. And so examining this passage alone, we recognize Jesus was a true human being. He understood the family dynamics. As the eldest son, Jesus was primarily responsible for caring for his mother. Mary was probably a widow by inferring the absence of Joseph of any mention beyond the birth stories. And what's interesting is Jesus understands this tension, that he's still human. He needs to care for his mom. He has these responsibilities, so much so that when he's on the cross, he looks at Mary and the the apostle John. He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He is caring for her as he's dying because he's supposed to be the one to care for her and provide for her needs as the eldest. But he's leaving, so he gives her to John. But that's not all we see about Jesus' humanity. We see from this very passage that Jesus isn't antisocial or ascetic. He's actually the opposite. Jesus attends this wedding celebration, all the major feasts of Israel. He eats in people's homes. He even asks for help at the woman at the well. Jesus is in every way human. And he's a perfect human at that. And you know what? In contrast to John the Baptist, he actually pursues involvement in his culture. John the Baptist was probably part of what's called the Cumanian community. And they separated themselves from culture and society. They, they lived almost as hermits at, by the Dead Sea. And so when John the Baptist's disciples came and questioned Jesus as to why his disciples were not fasting like good, pious Jews like they were, his response is fantastic. He says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Jesus makes this amazing distinguish, he distinguishes there's a time for celebration and makes it a point to say, anytime you're with me, it's always time to celebrate. How involved in culture are we supposed to be? How involved are we supposed to be in each other's lives? We're not supposed to be hermits. You can read stories of monks who, who put themselves on pillars and lived on a pillar for years and years because they thought that was the holy life. 
Sure, there may be some times to, to step away. Jesus even did that. But it's not to step away completely. Don't cut yourself off. Jesus' glory will be revealed through everyday life. And so our lives, by extension, can also reveal the glory of Christ. Christ's glory is going to be revealed in a wedding here. It can be revealed in your life. Nothing is too mundane or insignificant that the glory of Christ cannot shine through it. From faithfully stewarding your finances, to spending time with your family, even helping your kids with homework, the glory of Christ can be revealed through it. Christ's glory is revealed through everyday life. You don't need to be someone special. You don't need to have a great big event to see it or to show it to someone else. It can happen right after this service is done. Jesus lived a human life, and it's good. But if Jesus' glory was revealed through everyday life, when it was revealed, we found out that Jesus' glory is better than everyday life. Read with me again verses 3 through 5. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus and his mom have a really fascinating interaction right here. And it requires some further exploration. Mary is in some sort of serving role at this wedding. And because Jesus received an invite, it's more than likely that they are somehow related to the groom. Their family, there's some sort of relationship here. And Mary finds out something, something terrible. Because weddings were a celebration for all the families that involved and, and most of the community that they were around too. And weddings would last about seven days. And who was responsible to pay for the wedding? The groom. Totally opposite of today, right? Isn't it? It's the bride's side that kind of pays for the wedding and the ceremony. Well, in that case, it wasn't. The groom was supposed to provide for all of the needs once so that his guests were comfortable and cared for for seven days. That is wine. That is food. That is fun. And then the guests were required to bring a gift. And sometimes that gift would help offset the costs of the wedding. But what happens here, we realize something dreadful. The groom didn't prepare. Either the groom was poor or he had people that were mismanaging the wine. The wine has ran out. And we live in a different age. We live in a guilt and innocence culture. They lived in a shame and honor culture. And so to run out of wine was a, was a so social faux pas. He would be laughed at or ridiculed in his community. How, he, he obviously didn't prepare. He didn't know who he invited for. He's obviously not a planner or a preparer, so it would bring shame upon him and his family. And so Mary, because there's some sort of relationship, comes to Jesus and makes a declaration. They have no more wine. And Jesus' response is not what we would assume. He actually, in a very mild way, rebukes her. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so this marks the first and only time a son ever got away from calling his mom woman. Actually, I'm just kidding. That's actually not what it is. It's not derogatory at all. We just don't really have a word to describe what he's saying. Really, what he, it's, a, it's certainly a um, non, it's unusual, it's non-affectionate way for a son to refer to a mother in our day and his day. What he's saying is essentially, ma'am, what does this concern me? What, what he's kind of doing is say my mom calls me up and says, hey, Pat, Patrick, can I come over for, for dinner today? And I respond with, oh, I'm sorry, Lori. I'm a little busy tonight. Can I pencil you in about seven or eight on Thursday? Ugh. That's, that's not an interaction between a mother and son. And so Jesus' interaction right here, it, it kind of seems like he's distancing himself from her. And that's precisely what he's doing. There's a transformation taking place in their relationship. 
Jesus is diminishing his role as her son and is assuming his divine role as her savior. There's a transformation taking place in their relationship. We know this because her declaration of running out of wine is answered by Jesus' messianic words, his phrase, my hour has not yet come. Therefore, Mary's statement has a messianic message beyond just wine. Wine was a symbol. Wine must mean something to Jesus. He's going to do this throughout the gospel. Someone's going to bring to him or he's going to present something physical, something very on the surface, and he's going to use it to reveal a spiritual reality, a spiritual need. And some people see it and some people miss it. And he's starting right here. Look with me in these verses to figure out what wine represents. Jesus hears something different than what Mary is saying. Look with me in Joel chapter 3, verse 18. It says, In that day the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water all the valleys of Acacia. Amos continues. It actually says in Amos chapter 9, verses 11, 13, and 14, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring my people Israel back out of exile. That was last week's sermon that Pastor Daniel preached. The exile is ending. And what's a symbol of the exile ending? Wine being available. It's a symbol and a sign of God's blessing, of his promises, of comfort. And even in the New Testament, it didn't end in the old. The the symbolic uh, importance of wine is carried to the new. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, it says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine in old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus, in instituting the new covenant, says this in Luke 2.20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup, which has wine in it, is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. And wine was the symbol for the end of exile. And it's the symbol for the promise of God's blessing and provision. And Jesus continues to institute wine as the symbol for a new system, replacing an old and ensuring the promised new life. So when Mary says we've run out, run out of wine, what does Jesus hear? It's time for the exile to end. Which is why he responds with this phrase, my hour has not yet come. That phrase always has to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. We'll read that throughout. The hour means there's a definite time coming where I'm going to die. And so going back to this really, this phrase, we see Jesus' response to Mary. She was undoubtedly blindsided by this response. The boy she raised, nurtured, taught, and loved was now distancing himself from her. That must have hurt. It must have been a thorn kind of in her heart. This is new. This is a new development. But Jesus is genuinely loving her by revealing the divine purpose of his coming. She wants to rescue a family from social shame. He wants to save all people, including her, from an eternal death and a Christless eternity. He wants all people to be with him for all time. And so he points to his time, his crucifixion. But notice her response. He distances himself. She might feel pain, but ultimately she still trusts her son. 
What does she say to the servants around? Do whatever he tells you. Mary's trust in Christ must be based on the nature and character she witnessed over the years of raising him, watching him, being familiar with him. So that even as he distances himself, she still knows he is the one whom I should trust and can count on and depend on. And so she issues the servants and to us a strong command to obey whatever. Whatever he tells you. That's because obedience is embedded in the revelation of Christ's glory. Obedience is embedded in the revelation of Christ's glory. Let's keep reading in verse 6. John says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted that the water had been turned into wine. The servants do exactly as Jesus tells them. And they fill the ceremonial washings. What I think John is doing, and the reason why he's making it a point to say the stone jars, excuse me, and they filled them to the brim, He's making a point, I think, to say that the old way, the old system, the old way the Lord has blessed us, cared for us, is full, it is finished, and out of it will come something new and something better. And so Jesus commands them to draw some water out, and that phrase means to draw is to pull out. And that's when the water was turned to wine. That the, all those jars weren't immediately turned to wine. It was when those servants obeyed and pulled the water out, that's when it transformed into wine. Obedience is embedded in the revelation of Christ's glory. But can you imagine for a second being one of those servants? You may know that Jesus is a respected rabbi, but before this, John makes it really clear, there was no miracle that happened. So even when Mary asks him to, hey, we ran out of wine, let's do something, does she really expect a miracle? Well, she, she knows he's different. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said to her so, that it was so. But does she expect a miracle? Well, she may expect something, but the servants certainly have no idea other than he's a respected rabbi. And so what thoughts would be rolling through your head if you're one of these servants? <laughs> if I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, why, why is he making us fill up these jars? This, this won't solve anything. Come on, man, what's this going to solve? This, or this better be worth it, buddy. This is just busy work you're having me do. And then after you finishing, finish filling up 120 to 150 gallons of water, now he says, I want you to dip it and go give it to the master of your feast. An image comes to mind. Uh, I've watched some TV shows with, with um, Gordon Ramsay. Uh, Gordon Ramsay? Is that what it is? Yeah, he's the, he's the chef, right? I always screw that with Dave Ramsay. I go back and forth. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay. If you've seen it, he's a chef whose temper will erupt when one of his sous chefs brings him something he doesn't want. I can imagine a similar instance right here. The master of the feast has certain expectations and his servants, he expects to know those expectations and it's not to bring him wine. And so one of those servants who dipped the wine and Jesus says, now go take it. You don't know what's going to happen. This servant just is following orders and so he dips it and he takes it and you're probably shaking. Oh, do I really want to do this? Maybe you're anticipating an immense rebuke coming your way or scornful look, an eyebrow being raised. But to your surprise, when he tastes it, he has a different reaction. He is amazed that this is the best wine he's ever taken. Some of us are waiting for the glory of Christ to show up in our life. Some of us want a miracle in some sort of way. And Jesus has issued commands that may be the very thing that brings the glory to realization or brings the miracle to happen. 
That's what's taking place here. Obedience is embedded with Christ's glory in other ways too. This isn't just taking place here. Jesus, healing a man that was born blind, spit on the ground, made mud, rub it on his eyes, and then what did he say? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. That guy had to do something. He, he could have not gone to the pool and washed, and he'd still be blind, and he'd have mud on his eyes. Or the other man with the deformed arm, what did Jesus say? Stretch it out. And it became healed. To the man who was lame, he said, pick up your mat and walk. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus partners with human agents to reveal his glory. Now, in no way should you conclude that God needs our obedience to reveal his glory and to work his miracles. Instead, God often involves the obedience and participation of human agents as a means to administer his glorious works. Let me ask you, is that a sign of a good God? It is to me that he sees you and I as worthy of sharing in his work. He wants to involve us in his work, in his ministry, in the revealing of his glory. Brothers and sisters, each one of us has been sent by Christ to teach and reveal him to this world. Therefore, the revelation of Christ and his glory to our world has been forever coupled to our obedience to carry out the great commandment. He saw it fit to do that. This weekend, we had many people here who are waiting for the glory to show up or a miracle to show up in their finances, their relationship with their kids or with their spouse. They obeyed the command to continue to meet, to sit before God's word and seek counsel in his body to find wisdom, insight, and direction for where they should go, for where the glory should be revealed. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, don't stop meeting together as the habit of some, all the more as you see the day approaching. There are simple commands the Lord has given, and through those commands often come Christ's glory. They're still the Lord's, but human agents he wants to partner with. And so Christ's glory may come through everyday life. It is certainly better than everyday life. He wants normal people to be the agents of how his glory is revealed in this world. But Christ's glory, we need to know, is better than what has come before. Do you believe Christ's glory and his presence in your life is better than what came before you seeing the glory? John continues. We'll read verse 9 again. It says, The master of the banquet tasted the water. That had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. See, the master of the feast makes it a point to address Jesus' wine. It was so good, I have to say something about this. It was the choice wine, the best wine, and contrary to the customs of the day, he offered it last. If we go back to that passage in Amos, that promise of, the, of God's world to come, he also mentions what type of wine it was. He says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Guess what this says to us about the coming days of the Lord? There will be wine. It will be the best wine you've ever had, and there's going to be a whole lot of it. It will drip from the hills. What's taking place in this miracle? We have water that is turned into wine. It is the best wine. And I don't know about you, but close to 150 gallons of wine would suffice as being a lot. What is Jesus saying? I am the king and my kingdom is here. 
And it's better than anything that has come before. And so the wine will be the best, it will be sweet, it will be new, and there will be a lot of it. And so Jesus is making this statement. He is the promised Messiah, and he's ending the exile for all who believe in him. And so some of you may see that glory, but how can you be sure that it's good? How can you be sure that it's better than anything that has come before, any relationship, any other promise? How can we ensure it's better? For me, it's putting it to the test. And so do you see the glory? Do you know that it's better than what's come before? Let's look through this passage again. There's four things that come out to, that point, that stand out to me that I want to point out to you of why Jesus' glory is better and what he's offering is better than what has come before in your life and what will come after. The first thing, Jesus is concerned with everyday life. Jesus saved the day for an unnamed groom. We don't know who this family is. We have no idea. But nonetheless, he still showed up and saved the day. His ultimate concern was to die on the cross and to rescue people from an eternal shame and eternal Christlessness. But that didn't stop him from in the meantime, as a human being, in a culture, in a society that he knows what will take place, he still rescues this family from it. Now, if you go to the end of John, in John chapter 20, what does he say? There are more miracles than, than can be written on pages of paper. And we have no idea what those are. What does that tell me? That Jesus cared for the people he was around. Who did he do those miracles for? Just for those people. Jesus, as a human being, had relationships and genuinely loved us and loved those who, who he's around. And so there, are, there is no circumstance so insignificant that you shouldn't involve Christ in it. He is a human being and he cherishes every facet of human life. So, he does, so please, don't hesitate him to involve him if you run out of wine. Involve him in your human needs. There are plenty of cults and other religious beliefs and for the most part, a lot of them say human, humanity is bad. Flesh is wrong. That's not the case. When God created us as human beings and, and as and then put his son in the flesh, he said it was very good, and we are destined to be humans forever. Next, Jesus was well-known and trusted. So many of you grew up in a small town where everyone knows your business. <laughs> Jesus grew up in a small village and ministered to small communities. He couldn't hide being seen. He, who he portrayed himself to be was indeed who he was. Otherwise, Miss, Mrs. Kravitz would have ratted him out. That's a bewitched old, she was the neighbor that looked in the window and made sure everything was normal and wanted to see the town gossip. There's a story, if, if you don't or are not a part of Right Now Media, we have a, essentially it's a, a Netflix of discipleship studies and Christian kids programming that we give everyone here. If you don't have it, please write it in. We'd love to give it to you. But there's one of videos on there called Godspeed. And it was about a pastor ministering in northern Scotland. And he was in a small little town, pastoring a small little church, and he would walk from house to house meeting him. And he op knocked on the door and opened this gigantic Scot. Huge red hair, huge red beard, huge burly man. And he was essentially practicing pagan things. He had a Bible. He knew things about Christianity, but he didn't want to believe because he saw celebrity Christianity. He saw people on a big stage, and he thought, how can those people be trusted? And as he's going through John with this pastor, for some reason he flips to the back of the map. And he sees the distance Jesus traveled. And then he realized, this man couldn't hide. I come from a small town. I know that everybody knows your business. And so Jesus can be trusted. 
everyone would have called him out if he wasn't who he said he was. But number three, Jesus is the bridegroom who will provide for all of our needs. Jesus is the true bridegroom of his church. He has counted the cost and paid every price to provide for everyone's need he's invited to be a part of his family. So don't for a moment think you are somehow unaccounted for in his perfect plan. The grace won't run out. The mercy won't run out. The compassion won't run out for you. You do not stand on the outside. You won't be the last one in line and everything has run out. He has perfectly accounted for each one of your sins and already paid the price. He is the perfect bridegroom. But last but not least, Jesus invites us to share in his glory. Who did the master of the feast praise because of this sign and this miracle? It wasn't Jesus. It was the bridegroom. Nobody else knew in the wedding party, so he pulled the groom up unsuspectingly. He was probably on pins and needles going, well, the wine's going to run out. I'm going to have to endure shame. And then to his surprise, instead of being called out in that moment, he receives honor upon honor. This man serves the best. Jesus shares his glory with you and I, brothers and sisters. It's his, but he wants us to partake in it and to enjoy in it. You and I, we were destined for shame, but instead, because of his death on the cross, has given us the ability to experience and to taste his glory. And so Jesus' glory was put on display at this wedding. But the wedding party didn't know how or why, but the disciples saw the sign it says in verse 11. And what did they do? They believed. So a miracle, we think, is just an end in and of itself, but it's not. And miracle, and this the reason why John uses the word sign, it's a means to an end. Every miracle, every outworking of God's glory and his power is to result in us to believe in Christ. And it's no coincidence this sign took place at a wedding because a wedding ce- celebrates two people becoming one family. Those who see the glory of Christ and believe in his name become children of God. They are uniting with Christ in a new and better family. There's a whole lot of wine. It's the best wine, and he wants you to be a part of the celebration ceremony. If you've been a sleeper, if you've been sitting on the sidelines of church, seeing and witnessing the glory, it's time to make a decision. You think you may not be making a decision at all, placing your faith in Christ, but ultimately you have. Those who see either believe or don't believe. And that's the narrative we see in this gospel. And that's what we've seen throughout human history. People either see the glory of Christ and its goodness and want it, or they don't and turn away. Oh, sleeper, will you come off the sidelines and join in the celebration? Will you find new life in Christ, believe in his name, and receive the better life that he wishes to give? Will you guys pray with me? Our Lord and our God, We are humbled to know that although we were destined for shame, destined to be outcasts, destined to know what it's like to only know your wrath, you sent your son who saw something in us, saw something valuable, worth saving, and has invited us to be a part of his wedding celebration. God, I pray for the brothers and sisters in here who who need you to show up in everyday life, in their everyday circumstances. I ask for them to recognize the command to obey in some sort of way. I I pray that your spirit draw them to the attention and to remind them of what you've already taught them, that they may seek, know, and obey, and then result in seeing your glory, having your presence fill their life and their heart. 
Father, I pray for those in here who are just seeing the glory for the first time. May they see that your son is worthy to be trusted because he values them and who they are and what they are like. That he has already provided for them and wants to share with them his glory. Will you soften their heart and lead them to receive and to trust in your son? We thank you for this message and this sign. May we be encouraged that there are many more coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.